Hello, everyone. Welcome back to Fresh Perspective. With me today, Andri Stander. How's it? Hello, Francois. Welcome to Fresh those, Perspective. Thank you very much. One of those situations where you don't know if you can, if I can greet you on your nickname or if I must use your formal business therapist coach presentation name. Hello, <laughs> Francois. Well, for those who don't know, my nickname is Homie because I'm a homeboy. As you can see, the way I'm dressed reflects that. No, 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 it's not true. It's called Homie because he's a safe space. Ah, uh, well, I'll take it. Thanks. Exactly. But anyway, welcome. Welcome. So I know from previous conversations that you are in a transition stage, but maybe do you want to share with us kind of what you've been doing up to now, what you're planning on doing, or where do you want to start and jump in? Uh, yeah, transition is a is a small understatement. If transition means without formal employment since January, then yes, transition. Uh, and uh, obviously, this lockdown made it a little bit more interesting. So, I mean, if anyone's listening to this later on, we're in the middle of our Corona pandemic or the South African version of ours. But uh, the big benefit of it is that I've had so much time to really just think and um, focus and plan on what it is that I really want to do. So I, I worked for with Western Province Rugby for nearly eight years and um, was with the Western Province Rugby Institute. So essentially managing a professional rugby academy for youngsters leaving school. And uh, at the end of last year, we sort of started talking about maybe taking a change of direction and end of January this year I had the opportunity to to leave on relatively good terms just I just felt it was time so the last couple of months what's it now it's uh, we end of July so last six months or so there was a small stint where where I was working with the Stormers senior team on player welfare and sort of performance support management or yeah. performance management and support but uh, Obviously, the whole pandemic ended that when when the rugby finished. So, so it's given me quite a lot of time to to think and plan what the next step is going to be. And I've always, I say always, but over the last couple of years, fell in love with the idea of like high performance and what high performance is, and specifically sort of performance coaching. How you like plan and design for achievement and like in in sports athletes don't always realize that they've been applying sort of set rules and a set framework of behavioral psychology for achievement that can actually be copied for everyday life and i spent the last three years or so just listening and reading quite a lot of behavioral psychology books and so much of the science and the studies that came out, I saw in my seven, eight year period working with young professional players where, I mean, we work in an environment where we try and plan for achievement. I mean, you've got your coaching side, you've got your sports science, conditioning, medical, and everything works together around like individual athletes 
to get to can a you, point. Andre, can you maybe just, for people who don't know anything about how yeah. an institute works uh, or academy works in terms of sport or rugby, can you just give us an idea what does it mean, the Western Province Rugby Institute when it was still functioning? What, what was that? So I, I was referring to coaching and the sports science side, conditioning and medical. So the Western Province Rugby Institute was essentially the professional academy for our young players leaving school. And it functions or functioned like most other professional academies where the aim is, you know, essentially to transition young professionals or young players leaving school to the level of high performance. Or it's almost sort of a performance phase mm. where you're taking the school kid or the schoolboy and you getting him used to the rigors of top-level professional sport, and we tried to do it within a year. In fact, we tried to do it in the first five months, and then we go into competition phase. So when that player arrives, we do a full assessment of where he is in terms of his skill level, his conditioning level, whether he's had a recurring injury throughout school that was never properly nursed, those things all come out when you hit the ground running at the start of your academy year. So in a nutshell, sorry to use the cliche, it's an environment in which we transition a young player from, I played schoolboy rugby, I was, I'm talented, I was perfect every Saturday, to, okay, but this is now becoming your career. So you're going to do this for every single day of your life for the next 10 to 15 years. So it's it's getting him used to that. It's almost like a an articles period for someone who did accounting who, who needs to become a CA. Oh, I like that analogy. Okay. Uh, and what was, was interesting for me to notice when, when I was working with you there, uh, um, the times I spent with you there, um, is the impact that that increase in workload, you know, physically, obviously the training is a lot different, but also mentally – had. So what are some of the things you, you notice there? Uh, how do you see the, the, the split in the players, players, the young players that's actually ready to go onto that next level and those that, that are not? Okay, so I, this is probably one of my biggest philosophies and one of the things I'll write about a lot and say a lot in discussions is that it doesn't matter how talented you are. If you if 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 talent doesn't work hard, then it's not going to get to the next level. So uh, my my one colleague Greg, I think it was one of the one of the famous basketball players, used to say, "Is that work hard? Uh, or sorry, hard work beats talent when talent doesn't work hard." So it was so evident. Oh, it's probably the most evident thing I, I, I saw from year to year is you'll have these incredibly talented players, like really freakishly talented, who can do anything when you give them a rugby ball. But if they don't make every single session and they don't arrive early and they don't put in everything they need to, if they, and, and in fact, those are always the, the, those are the easier things to do, you know, was to get to a session, especially the field sessions. But if you don't comply with your medical check-ins, with injury report, if you've got a slight niggle, if you don't arrive for strapping, 
if you don't rest properly, like all the lifestyle things, which you can all put in the box of work ethic, then you won't make it to the next level. You can make it to the next season and probably even the season after that, like from a under 19 to under 20 or under 21 level, you can ride your talent because then your pool of competition is still relatively small. But the moment you leave sort of that under 21 level to the next level, then you become a full-on senior professional. And then as a 22-year-old, you are competing with the 28, 29, 30-year-old player as well. And uh, I mean, if you're in if you're in 19-year-old or 20-year-old, you're only competing with three age brackets. You know, you, you essentially competing with guys your own age. But as soon as that pool gets bigger, the guy who's experienced and willing to work harder than you is gonna is gonna work you out. And and there's so many stories of very talented individuals who arrived and didn't put in that work ethic, who got overhauled by the less talented guy, but who was willing to work his ass off. And they would essentially leapfrog him later on in the in the stream. And it doesn't, it never happens in the first year, funny enough. The, the talented guys are still the guys who play in their first year. It normally happens when sort of that compound interest effect starts showing in you know starts showing returns mm-hmm. two three four years down the line and the best story and I love the story is uh, the story of Nick Groom I mean he he was in the province institute he, he was a Rondebosch boys eye pupil I can't remember if he actually played provincial rugby at school but he arrived at the institute as a as a bursary player I think half bursary and he was the fourth in line. I think there were two South African schools scrum halves ahead of him. He was fourth in line and he didn't play a single game of Western Province under 19 rugby that year. And at club rugby that season, he even played on the flank sometimes, you know, just to fill spots. <laughs> but he just continued working hard. He, uh, it's just because he was always busy and he was such a great team man and he was willing, you know, he was willing to, to, to slot in where needed. And, uh, I mean, I, I did a, a, a chat with Ruan Nell a couple of weeks ago and he said something which was, which was amazing is that whichever jersey you are playing in, even if it's your club side's jersey, that's your Springbok jersey. You've got to treat it as if it's your Springbok jersey. Mm. And Nick Groom was one of those players. You know, whichever team he played for on a Saturday, that was his Springbok team. And he would act and perform as if he was playing for the Springboks. So, so he, he left the Institute year. The next season, he, he played for UCT under-20s a little bit and even UCT first side. And uh, sort of semi got pulled into the province structures again as a non-contracted player. By under-21, he was in, in, in the province under-21 squad again. And he was always sitting behind guys like Dival Divanacher and Luis Creator. But by his... I think 24, 25, when he was 24, 25, he was the first choice Stormer scrum off and like relatively comfortably. And I mean, he's now represented two super rugby sides. He's playing uh, top, top level European club rugby at, uh, I mean, he's, how old is he now? Let's say late twenties. So he, he has been able to build a career out of rugby just because he was willing to stick it through, you know, stay in the game and, and, and keep going. So 
taking a long story to get to the point. I mean, I think the the big differentiating factor is hard work and channeling hard work, focusing it into this is what I want. You know, I want to be a top performer one day, even if it's not this year, maybe not even next year, but I know I'll get there. I just need to put my head down and, and grind. But you're saying it nicely now, you know, channeling hard work because you can work hard, but if you don't focus that hard work, if you don't work smart as well, just to play uh, with words a bit, you know, it doesn't have that effect. You know, you, you talked about compound interest or compound effect. It's about investing that hard work somewhere. So how do you see that? Okay, so it's about it's about creating focus yes. and and creating priorities. So my big approach or model on performance is firstly to think. Uh, you know, whatever you think starts manifesting in in how you how you act. And without it trying to sound spacey and putting stuff out into the universe, that's that's not what it's about. It's essentially getting in the right mindset. If you're going to focus on the negatives, uh, and like now is a fantastic example. If you're going to focus on COVID-19, this, government, this, you know, I can't find a job, et cetera, et cetera, then uh, you're going to stay in that space and you won't be able to create whatever you want for the next step. So firstly, it's about thinking uh, thinking on the right side of a situation and telling yourself, I'm, I'm not a product of circumstance. I create my own circumstances. And it's about identifying and assessing where, where am I now and where do I want to end up being? So that, that's all under your thought pattern. And building a mindset that focuses on being growth orientated, saying I can improve, I can make a situation better because I am in control of every decision I make. I always say the only thing in life, like the only thing across every sphere of life that you can control 100% is your attitude. And attitude's not, you know, a big, bold, uh, capital letter poster on the wall with a mountain in the background. That's not attitude. Attitude is how you react to things. That's what it is. That's your view on things. And uh, out of that spawn sort of perspective, you know, being able to see something for what it is. So if you can think and view and cultivate a mental state or a mindset that says, uh, I can take control of circumstances and I can improve and I can move forward. I can move to a specific goal. This is what I want with my life. That's what I want to get to. You've also got to say, okay, where am I now? What, what do I have to deal with? What are the obstacles? What are the opportunities? What am, what's my skill set? Is there something that I'm going to have to learn to improve myself? Do I have to sort of pursue a change of character to get to what I want? So the next step to get to the, the focus and the priority section, the next step to convert what you think about and what you focus on into action, the middle step is planning or to plan. And within that lies setting priorities and what is important. What do I focus on? And what do I push aside? So we always had this view at the Institute. When, when I started there in 2012, the program director was, or the CEO was a, a coach by the name of Jacques Anacom. 
And I mean, he started the Institute and he, he was essentially the driving force behind it. And his view was when you come to the Institute, you are here to become a professional rugby player. And that's what you need to focus on. Hmm. So the Institute, funny enough, always cultivated that view that we're not going to offer guys sort of distance learning programs or try and put varsity college in here or get UNISA in here so that the guys have class at eight, gym nine, class at 10, you know, squeeze it in like that. They said, listen, we, we're going to provide 100% rugby. We're going to drive it into the, we're going to drive you into the ground with rugby. We're going to work hard and then assess whether you can take the next step as a full-term pro or whether you should go into university and play rugby part-time. And the interesting thing is that with that model, Institute players or Western Province Institute players who did a, a full-time rugby year and then went on to study the year afterwards had a much higher pass rate than students who went into part-time rugby and full-time studies straight away out of school. And I don't know whether it was the, the, the focus on, on hard work and work ethic and whether it was the idea that, you know, this institute's a gap year, you sort of sort yourself out as a young adult first, then you can start focusing on your studies. Hmm. But essentially... What's your, what does your gut tell you it, it is? What, what do you feel the real reason is for that? I just think players had time to really figure out what they wanted to do and where, where they, you know, where's their place in life because... A lot of guys who came to the Institute went on to do different things the following year. I mean, some guys became helicopter pilots. Other guys became professional hunters. I know a guy personally who became a ship's captain. I mean, he's sailing massive container ships across the world now, and he's, he's hardly 30. So I think it opened up your mind to say, you know, there's more than just doing a BCom general or going to do theology because that's the only thing I qualify for but it gets me into Marty's to play varsity cup so it just changes perspective slightly okay okay let's talk about what you're transitioning or what you're aiming for now so what what are you currently working on or where are you uh, where are you focusing your hard work at the moment okay so I actually to be able to answer, I need to back up quite a bit okay. and, and essentially starts like my schooling years. <laughs> and, you know, I was... Yeah, I'll so keep you it don't brief. have to start when you were born. You know, I can, but it's going to get very sort of, you know, it's going to become a psychology session here. <laughs> okay, cool. Go. So, I mean, when I was at school... You know, and I, I went to a really good boys' school uh, where we were sort of flooded with opportunities to do different things. So I, I'm not one of those kids who said I come from a bad background. I had to fight for everything. And, I mean, I was very privileged, and I'll, I'll be the first to admit that. Uh, but I'll, I'll also be the first to say that whatever your circumstances, everyone needs to make a decision to take control to to actually improve in life, whether you – kind of come out of good circumstances or don't. But, I mean, we were flooded with 
good teachers and school societies and good opportunities to play sport and so on. So I was just always more sort of enamored and focused on experiences and, you know, assessing social groups and seeing how people reacted to things around them. So I loved, I loved it when our classes became uh, raucous or whether we had a teacher who instead of doing science on the day, he would, he would uh, do a, a Q and a sort of quiz with the class. So I loved, I loved it when environments allowed people to just be themselves. And I wasn't one of those students who sort of drove maths and science and saw all the big, you know, you know, the subjects that are going to set you free one day, like the STEM direction subjects that, that have so much importance nowadays. I loved history. I loved geography. And all the subjects that would cultivate general knowledge later on in life. So I, I, I liked interesting things. Hmm. So because of that, I could never really, when someone asked me, what do you want to do one day? Say, yeah, I want to be a lawyer or I want to be an engineer or I want to be a, you know, a, a doctor or whatever it is. I hated psychometric testing. I hated career testing because most of the time they gave me things that I just didn't see myself doing or it gave me that my number, my number one choice would be lumberjack. You'd be a good lumberjack. And I said, how do I do that? Because being, <laughs> being in a good, very academic school, if you said, no, I want to be a lumberjack, they would laugh you off and you'd be a, a, you know, you'd be a laughing stock in your social circles. So I, never, I could never find a footing in something that I really wanted to do. So by the time I finished my trick, I'd applied for a BCom for university the next year. I was fortunate to already be, be accepted to, to go to Stellenbosch. Uh, I, I liked studying. Like, uh, Well, no. Okay, let's put it in a different way. I was good at studying. But I would always cram just before a test or just before an exam. And I was very good at remembering facts and then go and regurgitate in a test. And a week later, I wouldn't remember anything. I was good at that. So yeah. the problem was it never taught me work ethic. It never taught me that A plus B equals C. I was like, okay, no, I can go through life squishing in what I what I need to quickly do, and I'll I'll get the result at the end of the day. And it cost me like fifteen years of progress. And and I, why do you say that? Like, that's that's quite a statement. Why do you say that? I'm going to get to it in my story. I All mean, right. because I'm I'm 36 now, and I can tell you now for the first time in my life that this is what I think is important and this is what I want to end up doing, but I still can't get the discipline to just get my head down every single day and do it mm. uh, because of that routine that I built up. But I'm getting there. It's something that I'm working on. I'm not perfect in any way. No one is, but uh, so the, it's, it's an ir irony that, that the product that I'm getting to is called the high performance life because I haven't mastered it at all. So anyway, so when I finished school, I, I'd enrolled for BCom at, at university, but by the time we were on summer break, just before going to varsity, I was convinced that I was going to do winemaking. I was like, no, I'm going to, when I register on the day, I'm going to register for winemaking. Okay. And then during that holiday, a friend of mine's friend or sister or someone who was studying winemaking at the time said, no, no, you don't want to do winemaking. You won't get a job one day. 
and you won't make good money. So I was like, okay, no, no, I'm not going to do winemaking. I'm going to stick with a BCom. So I started with BCom marketing. By the end of the first year, I changed to BCom financial management and then BCom financial analysis, which is a lot more investments focused. By my third or fourth year, I can't remember which one because I'd failed a year, I was on BCom economic and management sciences, which is general because I'd shifted subjects around. So there wasn't a sort of focused direction, but I had done accounting and so on. But in that time, like four years of studying something, and, and it's like such a big irony that it's a, a, a degree direction where you need sort of 75% to be guaranteed a place. So you have to be in the top bracket of academics at school to get in. You walk away with like zero practical knowledge. Like you've got nothing that you can apply. So if you work into a, if you walk into a job, and let's say you're in marketing, and you sit in on your first big meeting, and you say, "Yes, I know what the four P's of marketing are," which I learned in my first year. They're going to laugh at you. Mm. So, so, so that just sort of exasperated my feeling of not knowing what I want to do, what I want to end up becoming. I mean, I always had this view, which I think every school kid has in their head. And, and I saw it with Institute players coming into the Institute is they see a career as a destination. Like you become a doctor or you become a, an accountant or you become a marketer or marketing manager or a sports manager. So it's this destination thing. But like, I mean, it's not. A career is only, I mean, it's a, it's a tool or a, a pathway to help you be something else or, or you know, to, to realize a purpose or, or realize what you really want to be, which could be something completely different. It, it could, you could be someone that is going to change environmentalism. But you can do it with a BCom, you can do it with engineering, you can do it with medicine. So that you've got your tool that, that's going to get to your purpose. But I never saw that. And we were never taught that at school, at university. So I really struggled to like take this tool, which is my degree, into a realization of a purpose. Mm. So I, I jump I just, in a bit. So, so just to be clear, so you're saying kind of the, the way that many people see it and the way you saw it is like, what you're studying and will end up becoming because of that, those studies or degree or whatever, that's your purpose. Those were linked for you. Whereas now you see it differently. There's a purpose and you can come from any kind of degree or background or whatever and, and still pursue that purpose. Yes. Okay. Uh, I, I listened to, to a great talk by Andy Stanley the other day. I'm a big fan of his, of his leadership uh, of his leadership talks and he said like so many people try and become their purpose or, or, or they try and how did he put it he said whatever you do is only a means to an end it's not the end goal it's not the end goal to be a pastor or to be a, a an engineer that it's it's not the end goal mm. it's a means to an end and I think the problem with school and with academia and with university is they teach you that what you're studying now is the thing that's going to set you free because it's going to be 
It's going to be the paycheck. It's going to be the thing that's going to help you look after your family, etc. And, and there's this very small truth to that. But I mean, I, I, there's so many guys with degrees who can't get jobs. And there are so many guys who didn't finish school who are millionaires just because they knew what their purpose was and they knew how to pick up tools. In fact, not all of them knew what their purpose was, to, to be honest. Most of them, if not all, just sort of dug into a direction and started with, with small things. And it could have been measly jobs. I mean, a, a friend of mine who's, who's a Stormers defense coach, his, Norman Laker, his dad started a construction company straight out of the military. He always tells a story. He had like, I think, two rand or five rand or 50 cents in a wheelbarrow. And now it's one of the biggest construction companies in the Western Cape, if not South Africa, just because he was willing to work hard and he built up from there. So I think the trick for those guys is they realize that what they are doing, or, or at least that the purpose isn't in what you are doing. The purpose ends up becoming the reason you are doing this thing. You know, so whatever you're doing is a tool to get to, to the bigger thing. And I never had that picture. So, so I, I was always chasing a job, and which I thought, you know, I have to get a job because that's the end goal. Once I get, get a job, I'll be sorted. And did you always so, feel like you, you can get the perfect job and that'll, you know, ignite your purpose? Exactly, exactly. Mm. I know people talk about the perfect job, but I don't think there's such a thing. Because any job gets mundane. Unless you have some sort of autonomy over how it changes. And that's why guys like Elon Musk, well, I know he's one in, in five billion uh, and not everyone has, a, has a, you know, the opportunity to do what he does. There are people who, be, who are able to do it on a small scale. But I mean, he's got autonomy over where he takes his ideas to a relative extent, you know, barring board of, boards of directors approving him or not. But every time he sends a rocket into sky and the thing lands again, the board gives them a bit more leeway. So, so once you, you know, you plow into a direction that you're, that you start realizing, yes, but I, I'm really enjoying what I'm doing here. The purpose starts showing up and I never saw that. So I just continuously jumped from one sort of course and, you know, to the next job because I thought that's what I needed to do. And I, I really, I still didn't know what I wanted to do when I, when I graduated. In fact, I had a, a bursary to go and do an honors in journalism, which I couldn't end up taking because I failed my final year of BCom, which in the long run and in hindsight ended up being one of the biggest blessings in disguise in my whole life. Because when I failed that third year, in my fourth year, I only had two subjects, so I had a lot more time. And I started coaching rugby. I got, got involved in, in other areas. And it just started opening a little bit of a new world for me, you know, the coaching side and managing teams, getting involved in sport. And even though we weren't playing in any massive competitions, I loved the idea of taking a sort of vision over what you want, which is winning and having fun and enjoying it and building a plan around that. So that comes back to that three-step model I was talking about, where the first one is think. Part of the think process is seeing a vision. The second one was planning. I love that planning thing to say, okay, this is what we want. What do we need to focus on? And what do we need to prioritize? And 
so I started seeing that in the coaching. So during that time, I, I, when I finished my BCom, I continued coaching. I started working as a real estate agent and, and doing an honors in finance. It was a great time for me to get to know myself. That's, that's probably the most introspection I've ever done was, was in that period, sort of early to mid-20s, where I realized that, you know, you aren't your degree. You aren't your qualification. Just purely because I'd failed a year, it was a big knock for me because, you know, there was this expectation of me to be this perfect academic, you know, get your degree. And every time I put that expectation on myself. Mm. So when that started unraveling and I saw that, you know, actually it's still fine. And, and I was very fortunate that my dad is, and, and mom, I mean, they're incredibly supportive. And obviously they were angry with me at, at failing that year. They said, listen, we're going to back you until you get this degree. And we're going to back you until you get your honors. So I wasn't thrown to the wolves and told, okay, you've got to get a job now to finance the rest of your degree or pay back the money or whatever it is. I said, well, we continue going. So, so that played a big role in me being, you know, actually being able to finish. So, so anyway, I, I continued coaching. Uh, I finished my time as an estate agent and I was sort of looking for the next step after my honors. And thought I love being involved in sport. I love I love the rugby coaching. And my mom, she's she was always the one who sort of planted seeds and planted ideas. And she said, she said "Listen, I found this postgrad sport management course at UCT. Why don't you take a look at it?" And ended up enrolling. And it was one of the most practically brilliant years I've I've ever experienced. And and I've got to give credit to course coordinator there, David Marillac, who runs the course. I mean, he asks more questions than he, than he tells you what the theory is. And he brought in so many guests and field trips to show you what the industry is like instead of telling you out of a textbook. Hmm. So I ended up finishing top of the class there um, just because I enjoyed it. It was fun. But the next step was to find a job in sport. And it took me nine months to get a job. So I was, I was jobless at that stage. And then I finally found a job in business consulting, which I really needed at that time. But the interesting thing, and this is where sort of the frustration with education settled back again, was during that period of looking for work, I, I rested on my qualifications again. So I said, okay, I've got a BCom, I've got finance, I've got sport. I have to get a job in finance or sport. Mm. And I, I sat around. I ask you about when you went job hunting back then, what guided it? And you've answered that question that's, now. That's it. Like, that's it. So I, like at school and university, they don't tell you that you've, you've got to learn how to hustle and, and like be an entrepreneur and create cash flow so you can create value and create opportunities. So if you can't find a job and you are 25, you know, don't be too full of pride to go and wait there or, or you know, to, to do something that might be a little bit beneath a guy with an honors. I didn't, you know, I didn't have that in my head. So I continued looking for work, looking, looking, looking until I found something in business and finance, which the, I had a great boss. We had a great, a great relationship. He loved sport, so we always, you know, we always got along well. But the job itself was extremely mundane and monotonous. 
But during that time, I was always fishing for, for sports jobs, sports jobs. And I, I was just speaking to Jacques Anacom a lot, the guys who started the Institute. And two years into my business or the, or the business consulting job, he gave me a call and said, listen, uh, you need to come and see us. We need a new admin guy for the Institute. And that's where I got involved there in 2012. So I, I was really in that space of, okay, now, you know, I'm being set free. Now I'm getting this perfect job. So I'm going to be fulfilled. Mm. So even though you get that good job, it's still not always ideal for your mindset. And for the next couple of years, I loved my job because I was in a great environment, great sports facility, people who are serious about high performance. And that's why I started cultivating that real interest in how does high performance work and what is it? And it's about a team of coaches and managers and conditioners and sports scientists who all work towards a single goal, which is to get these individual athletes like high performance ready and transition them. And it's almost like you're almost designing achievement. You know, you're ticking all these boxes. So the, the, the danger for me still was that, you know, a career is a destination. And, and I was working in this high-performance environment, but still after five years of being there, when people ask me, you know, and my mom especially, you know, where are you going to take this? If, if you're going to take it further, what are you going to do? What's the next step? And I couldn't tell them. I said, no, I'll, you know, manage academies. And then, like, over the last two years, in fact, funny story is, I, I dabbled in network marketing for two years. And um, it's probably one of the most personally fulfilling times in my life. And I know a lot of people laugh at the idea of network marketing because they think it's pyramid schemes and so on. And there are pyramid schemes, but there are also very legit businesses out there. Yeah. But the emphasis that was placed on personal development in that industry. And I know so many guys will tell you that. Tony Robbins, Jim Rohn, all those guys so if you do if you do network marketing for one reason, do it for the personal development. I started realizing the benefits of personal improvement as a process. What's and network that, marketing? Can you say something about that just to help us understand how how network marketing and personal development will link? Yes. Okay, so so there's a there's a couple of different names for network marketing. There's direct selling, multi-level marketing. Uh, ours specifically was a social entrepreneurship. So it's it's any business model where the company uh, has a product to distribute, and instead of going full retail and spending money on advertising, going on television and magazines, they put all their marketing budget into a pool, and they reward product users for getting other people to use the product. Mm. So every individual who, who buys product or buys anything from the company has an opportunity to build their own personal entrepreneurial business by also getting other people involved to use and distribute the products. Okay. So I know a lot of reasons people think it's pyramid schemes and, and, and so forth. And the guy at the top gets all the money is, is they think that when you buy a product, all their money is going to pay the guy above them. But it's a very complex a mathematical system used to calculate the commissions that people get paid. But essentially, I mean, you can, you can earn more money than the guy who signed you up down the line just by the way the system works. But anyway, so that's 
that's how, that's how network marketing works. But obviously, the, the, the industry has developed to such a stage and there's so many scams out there and people are so wary of this type of thing because I, I learned very quickly that people are so scared of being intruded upon. So, and, and people are scared of intruding upon others. So, I mean, if you, if you really understand how network marketing works and how the financial system can, can, and it really can set quite a lot of people free financially, just because you've got hundred percent control over how you build that business for yourself. If, if, if you really understand what it can do for others, you're quite keen to share how the model works with other people. But they're so scared of rejection because they know that nine out of 10 people are going to bat them straight away because they think they're trying to sign them up into this funny scam or, or funny pyramid scheme or whatever, whatever it might be. Or invite them to a Tupperware party, you know, where, where there's going to be 10 other ladies telling you how amazing this little this new little bucket is for storing old food in. So, so they they become scared of sharing. So that's where it. the personal development comes in. Hundred percent. So, mm. so the personal development really focused on becoming a better version of yourself and cultivating mindset. And I mean, that was always the first thing: is cultivating the idea of why why am I doing this? It's flippant tough. It's really difficult. People are rejecting me. It's tough phoning. 20 people in a morning to try and set up meetings to share the product or the business with them. Most of them reject you. The guys who, who say yes to a meeting, uh, nine out of 10 out of 10 of those guys will reject you at that meeting. And the guy who, who agrees to come to a bigger meeting with you doesn't pitch up. So it's eventually you've got like one out of 50 people who end up really committing for a medium term mm-hmm. and one out of a thousand see it through for, for more than a couple of years. So you really start cultivating this, this idea of, you know, my purpose or the reason I'm doing this has to be really strong. And that's where the whole purpose and the tools that the, the, the business becomes a tool for getting to your purpose and really becomes strong. And your purpose has to be really, really strong for you to say, but this is the tool that I want to use to get there. And, um, I mean, personal development, so it, it's centered around cultivating your why, your purpose, your long-term vision of what you want to end up becoming. And then there's a lot of sort of mental skills, character skills that comes in comes into play with the rest of the personal development stuff. So I, uh, in one of my years, I think it was 2015, was a year our first, uh, our first uh, baby was born. I read 50 books that year. And it was like my mind just went boom, like really expanded into a new space because of what I realized people are capable of doing just by changing their mindset and thinking in a new way. That shifted me completely. And obviously working in a high-performance sporting environment, you can start seeing that come into play. You could start identifying the players and the athletes who, who had that mindset. You know, you could see the guys who had the big picture thinking. And even the, the coaches who were working with you, you could say, oh, this guy is like top of his game. He's the best in what he does. I mean, a guy like Johan van Wyk 
at SAS, he's got that. And he's extremely driven because he's got that purpose mindset. Uh, and, and not all the coaches I've worked with have that. You know, it's got to be about them. It's not about the bigger picture. So, so you start seeing that. And then you start realizing the way that high performance works is you've got to prioritize what's important. And, and Johan also always said that. Keep the main thing the main thing. Focus on the things that's going to take you forward. Forget about the things that are going to distract you, even if they are good things, even if they are value-added. You, often you've got to put the value-added things aside if it's going to detract you from, from moving forward effectively. Mm-hmm. And then the third, the third step in the model, which, which I haven't even mentioned yet, is acting or to act or to get going or to just do. Uh, I, I've, got, I've, I've got a permanent, I'm not a permanent marker, a dry wipe marker, right? On the tiles in the shower, like small things that I want to remember. So in the morning when I take my cold shower, I read those things to just as reminders. And one of the things I write up there is, or I wrote up there is, uh, doing is the, is the best form of planning because it at least gets you going. Mm-hmm. And, and as soon as you get going, you're going to start realizing what's important and not. Mm-hmm. And I mean, a, 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 you can't move a ship or you can't change a ship's direction if it's standing still. It's got to be moving forward. And your sort of, I almost say, I don't want to say career, but what you want to do is the same thing. You've got to get going into something. Mm-hmm. So you start, you asked me at, right at the beginning, what am I busy with and why am I doing that? Where am I taking it? So over the last couple of years, working in that performance environment and seeing the value of personal development, I saw the value in, I, I like to call it sort of programming performance is saying, okay, the starting point is to have the vision. The programming phase is to say, what do we need? What do I need personally to get there? Mm. And what do I need to focus on? What do I need to leave out? And I've so often said, okay, but I want to become better at this. And to to be able to do that, let's say financial investing. I, I, I need to learn to be better with my money. So I go into the Shaw Academy or Udemy or any online course or YouTube and I enroll for seven different courses. One in household budgeting, one in financial investments, one in trading, one in forex trading. And I end up doing none of them just because there's no focus. So I realize the value of doing one thing at a time. Gary, Gary Keller, who started Keller Williams Realty, has got a fantastic book called The One Thing, where he talks about what is the single first step that you need to focus on to to get onto that pathway of achievement so so when i was sort of forming this idea of programming performance and and the role of personal development in performance i realized that a lot of athletes just have it naturally when they work hard they i mean it comes naturally for them to be able to to take steps going forward they're good at visualizing what they want. They're good at prioritizing. I mean, they don't go out Wednesday nights and Friday nights for drinks when everyone else is because they know I've got to rest. I need to perform tomorrow. And they're very good at acting. They're very good at doing what they need to do. They get on the field. They work hard. They, they get in the game. And the results come for them at the end of the day. Even if the team loses, their individual self gets better and better and better. And that's one of the big things about vision and purpose 
is once you get into the acting phase, when you really dig into the process and the, you've got this concept of goals versus process and goals falls within the thinking range, you know, seeing what you want. Uh, in fact, it falls in the planning range. So, so thinking is your vision, goals come in your planning phase and processes fall into the acting phase. Mm. And you've got this sort of tussle between goals and, and process because often you don't get to your goals even if you follow your processes to a T, mm. even if you don't get to those goals, you can still get to an end point that leaves you better off than you were at the start. You Would an example be not, not in rugby terms, not being picked for a team or a position, but still yeah. staying in the process to try and uh, qualify or get that spot uh, yes. formed and, and change you into a certain kind of person. Okay. 100%. Mm-hmm. You, you, so, you're still getting you're still getting stronger you're still getting fitter you're still getting healthier mm-hmm. so so that framework started just sitting in the back of my head and then the last step of of that learning process for me you know the first was was realizing that a career is not a destination or job is not a destination the second one was personal development working in network marketing uh, together with working in a high performance environment you know programming achievement the last one was just immersing myself in behavioral psychology books, uh, things like Power of Habit, uh, Grit by, by Angela Duckworth, Power of Habit, Charles Duhigg. You also wrote uh, Smarter, Better, Faster, or I think there was a title, yep. uh, Culture Code, Talent Code, um, Deep Work by um, Cal Newport. There's so many of these behavioral psychology books that are based on research and studies and science. Mm. And I saw that so many of those concepts were were being implemented by the best athletes inadvertently without them realizing that there was such a psychological body of work. What what are like the top three principles that you feel like those kind of athletes apply, knowingly or unknowingly? Is that kind of what your your model is built around, or do you feel yes. like the, the principles are something a bit different? I, I think yes. It, the, so, so thinking, they, they do, planning, and yeah. acting that that kind of knowing. Yes. Yeah. So so first is knowing what they want, being clear yeah. on it. All right. But it needs to be realistic, you know. And that so so there's overlap between the three areas. You you can't separate them because it's a system. Mm. So they know what they want, but they're also realistic about it. So when you're realistic about what you want, you're starting to go into the planning phase because your goals are realistic. So I've had players arriving at the Institute and and for the last couple of years, I'd have one-on-ones with them and I would ask them, what's your outcome for the end of the year? You know, where do you want to see yourself in one year time, five years time itself and so forth? I've had players sitting with me who, I mean, they weren't, Good players, talented, but they're definitely not they're not the most uh, the, the biggest prospects we've had. And, and they should know this by the level of rugby they played at school. They would sit there and they would tell me they want to be Springboks by the end of the year. I'd say, flip, man, it's, you know, it's nice knowing that's that great, that's yeah. what you want. But there's no way. There really is so little chance of you getting there. There's so few guys who manage that. 
And um, even to play Isand 20 is could be a long shot. Mm. So that's the first thing, you know, is, is, is knowing what you want, but being realistic about it as well. Because it's, if, if a goal is really too big, then it struggles to drive you because it just feels so unrealistic mm-hmm. and or, or, or unattainable rather. And uh, so many people say this, but and Vader Hubert, who I also interviewed on one of my podcasts, said that you, you'd be amazed at what you can do with a longer period of time, you know, as, as opposed to a shorter period. I can't remember 100% what he said, but we can get so much done if we are realistic about what we can do in the short term, and then we'd be amazed to see what the effect is of those short-term achievements in the longer term. It's yeah, Tony compound. Robbins uh, says, like, we overestimate what we can do in a, yes, that's a it. month and underestimate what we can do in a year. That's it. Okay. Sorry. I, I went all George W. Bush on, on my remembering skills and my paraphrasing <laughs> skills. I like it. But um, so the next step from from going, you know, from saying this is – what I want to achieve or knowing what I want to achieve is to be able to define it, clarify it, you know, put it in writing, put it on a piece of paper, stick it on my wall. And there's studies that say, if you put your goals in writing, put it on your wall, you're more likely to achieve it. I've read from other sources that that study was fabricated. So whatever it is, I know that if you know what you want and you can clarify it and you can define it, and prioritize, the chances are so much better of you getting there anyway because it's always in the back of your head. Well, if you're able to write it down, you already have more clarity than someone who doesn't, exactly. doesn't write it down. Mm. Exactly. And and the biggest progress I've seen in my life is when I, you know, if I've got a long to-do list. You've got your big ticket, long-term value-added items, like producing a podcast, recording shows, uh, looking for work, writing articles for your, for your website. If you focus on one area per day, you get so much more done, even though it feels like you're only focusing on one small thing, than saying, I've got to tick seven boxes today, and you don't get to anything. So if you can take your bigger picture, focus on one thing at a time, and then just do and have the discipline to do, then then that's going to set you apart. And my brother-in-law showed me a tweet or reminded me of a tweet in the middle of lockdown somewhere in the States when, when it was still hard lockdown across the world. It was a professor or a scientist or businessman, somewhere I can't remember, who said, if you exit this lockdown or end your lockdown and you haven't learned a new skill, or started a new business, or applied something, or created something, or at least changed something within your own life that is tangible and visible, then we know that your issue is not a time issue, it's a discipline issue. Because mm. people are always saying, I don't have time, don't have time. I've had, I've had student, I've had rugby players in the institute who stopped studying part-time because they said they didn't have time. And I know they only spend five to six hours a day on rugby. So it left quite a lot of time, you know, to invest in, in themselves. But anyway, that's a topic for a different day. So what I want to get to is that discipline. 
in action is like the last most important thing. And that's almost the most important thing of the whole process. So yes, you, you can head in the wrong direction if you just jump straight into doing without really knowing what you're doing, but at least it's going to get your ship sailing. And mm -hmm. once that ship is sailing and it's almost like getting into a career or getting into a job, forget about what your passion is right at the start. Because the moment you start going and you're moving, you're going to discover small things that you enjoy about it. And that's when you can start shifting like your, your, um, your heading to go more in a direction where you'll start doing more and more of the stuff that you really enjoy. So anyway, so the players who are set apart are the guys who know what they want, who can prioritize, will say no to a girlfriend, will say no to mates when they go to town, We'll go and lie on the, the roller and recover and do prehab and rehab and injury report and dig in and have discipline to do the same thing every single day for a year and then two years and then five and then 10 and just keep going. Those are the guys who, who will be set apart. And that's what I, I learned that quickly. You know, I saw that very quickly. And I thought, just imagine if you can build a model at least build a body of information where you combine this behavioral psychology research that's scientifically proven facts for why some people are productive or efficient and apply it to the high performance principles of practice and design and programming that happen you know on purpose and not on purpose or inadvertently and put them together you package it in a system for everyday people who you know, want to become better at what they do, want to achieve more. You know, everyone has people that inspires them. Everyone's got role models. Everyone looks up to someone, whether they're Hollywood actor or sportsman, a, um, an entrepreneur, or even the perfect family guy next door, you know, the, the guy who, who stays true to his wife. He's great with his kids. He, he, he invests in his family time. but you know, he owns his home outright. He owns both his cars cash. You know, he's financially set. You know, he's that millionaire next door. The thing is that everyone can become that. And I think the bridge between, you know, where you are and becoming that lies in sort of a programmable framework. And I think the lessons from high-performance sport that says dig in, train, program everything you do, bring all your elements together to get to an endpoint with the power of how the mind works, you know, the psychology of everything. I think that's the that's a balance and that's that's idea and that's what I'm busy doing in creating the high performance life. You know, the, the website, the podcast is to say, how can we as people, how can I translate the story of a Stormers rugby player into a small lesson for the everyday listener. Mm -hmm. So Ruan Nell, for example, and, and the thing is, I mean, this, this episode is for your podcast, but I'm also going to use it as, as sort of a startup for mine because it, this tells my journey mm -hmm. is I've, I've already recorded five interviews or four. I think it's four or five. Mm -hmm. And every single one has a, has a different lesson. All, all four of the, of the people I've, I've interviewed, I see as high performers. I mean, there's a, a professional rugby player, there's a professional conditioning coach and wrestler, um, 
there's a professional rock musician uh, and I mean all these guys are high performers so they've got different stories and you know different journeys different things that appeal to people and uh, uh, in fact I also interviewed a, a former survivor South Africa contestant who's a pastor and so they'll all have different messages but they'll all talk about an element which forms part of the high performance picture or framework. So you can uh, kind, of, kind of see those principles in their stories already. Yes. Mm, so Ruan Nell, which is fantastic, I love his story. He was one of those, and you don't see late bloomers a lot anymore in sport because I think our, our scouting system has got it wrong. We, we try and identify at 17, 18 and take a guy into a performance system and we sort of shut the rest out. But what Varsity Cup, as an example, did for guys like that is it just extended that journey for the late bloomer a little bit longer. And a guy like Ruan that went to a small school, didn't play you know, top-level rugby at school uh, provincially, played a little bit at smaller unions. He's now a top uh, a, a super rugby player. He's one of the best sevens players in the world. And his story was, I'm just going to continue working hard. I'm just going to work, be disciplined, do what I need to do, and treat every single level that I'm at as my top level. That's my story. Mm -hmm. A guy like Vasson Lopesha, he, um, for me, his story is all about staying positive in difficult times and just doing what you love, following your passion and practicing, practicing, practicing. Mm -hmm. uh, a guy like Vanna Hubert, the survivor contestant passed. He's a very purpose-driven guy. And he said something that like blew me away. It's one of the best one-liners I've ever heard. Is he said that uh, goals mean nothing if they aren't served on a plate of purpose. And that's what we've been talking a lot about a little bit now. If you don't know why you're doing something, it's going to be very difficult to plan outcomes for that. That was his big focus. I mean, he's a very strategically strong person. He knows what his vision is and he'll change his ship to different, you know, you'll, you'll steer different directions depending on needs, what needs to be done now, but it'll still get to the same vision. Uh, and then um, Conrad de Villiers, who's a contact coach, former wrestler with, with uh, the Stormers, he, uh, he's got an incredibly interesting story, you know, how he started wrestling when he was nine. And he traces that journey all the way from, from being a nine-year-old to where he is now and also the value of hard work, but just sticking to something, even when he really doesn't enjoy doing it and building a lifestyle of exercise. That was his big thing, building a lifestyle out of something to, to get to an end point and, and also uh, sticking through tough times. He got dropped from a place at the Beijing Olympics like two or three months beforehand, which inadvertently ended his career and he had to reset course to, you know, to do something else. So anyway, so those are the first couple. It's just to try and give an idea of where the podcast is, gonna, is going to go. Mm -hmm. and, and things change. I mean, visions and, and ideas around concepts change all the time. So my first four episodes might be a lot different to what's going to come after that. Because you, as, you, as you record, and you probably would have seen it as well in, in your line of work. I know we've spoken about it your niche sort of changes or what you think your niche can be. Mm. So what I want to end up 
achieving with it is to take tidbits out of the life of high performers and put it in a little package for someone who, who really needs to hear it for their own life. Whether it's a, a, a house father, you know, a, a dad who's always been office bound, but he got laid off and now his wife, you know, his wife is a businesswoman and he's at home looking after the kids now and he needs, he needs to find a creative way to make that purposeful for him. Uh, or whether it's the guy who's starting a new business or the 18 year old who's leaving school and, and still wants to become a top sportsman, even though there's no sport happening this year, you know, there's, there's a lot you can take out of it. No, I like uh, the, the fact that it's a wide variety and a broad spectrum of people from different walks of life pursuing different things. But uh, the principles that you can draw from all of those things are what anyone can apply to whatever they are working towards. Thank you. You've summed it up pretty well. That That's essentially what I want, what I want to get yeah. to. Yeah. So, the, so, so the first four interviews... Um, the, the stories are incredible and, and I've obviously in editing them, I've li probably listened through most of them four, five, six times and all of them like capture me and, and, and those people's stories pull me in. But as the series goes on the, or the podcast, it's going to become a lot clearer, you know, the message and what we're trying to achieve. You know, I'm, I'm not perfect yet. I mean, I'm, I'm not rigged for video podcasting yet, as you can see in the <laughs> background. Yeah, I don't have the fancy green screens yet. My green screen didn't work today. So it's it's literally just a green wall. But there's a lot, there's a lot that'll still get refined and improved with time. And and I'm also I've also got articles up on my website. Uh oh, where can people them. read and, and listen to these things? So I've, so my site's just andrestander.com. And the brand is called the High Performance Life. You know, it's a, applying high performance principles to life. Mm. And the articles differ slightly from what the podcast is. Articles I'll write on anything that I find interesting at the time, or I, I feel people can find interesting mm. on whatever I feel like writing about. I've, I've, I've written on, I've got a three-part article on, on dealing with, dealing with discipline and a high performance setup, which you can apply to sport and and business. Um, there's an, a, a story about a long distance runner who got lost in the desert. So I'll try and find any high performance story environment or situation, and I'll write about it and try and take take lessons out of it. So that's gonna it's gonna be. I don't want to use the word vague. It's gonna be. It, there's gonna be variety. It's gonna be various, and it's gonna be dispersed. A, a, across a lot of fields, but it'll always come back to the concept of high performance in life. And high performance is not about becoming the very best person in the world and whatever you choose to become. You're not aiming to be the best engineer on the planet or the best gardener or save the most money. It's about becoming better versions of yourself. And that is about applying improvement principles that'll get you better every single day. It's just about getting into a, a groove and a process where you feel I'm achieving now. Mm. And one of the best motivating factors is achievement and progress and mastery, you know, getting better at what you do and actually being able to see I've achieved this now. Great. I'm excited for the next step. Mm. And that's what it's almost what it's about. 
Yeah, that creates the momentum to keep going as well. Momentum, that's, that's the other word that I was looking for. Uh, okay, my last question, Andri, is uh, what do you feel like is uh, your superpower? Jeez, my superpower. Mm. Well, my, my kids will say it's, I'm very strong. <laughs> and uh, which, yeah, you know, I don't agree with always. <laughs> I, I like seeing, I like trying to see a flow and a system and a process in most things. Mm. And any process or any system that's aimed at reaching an outcome or getting to a, an end point where you are better off than the start has a first step. And like that first, it's that first important thing that you need to do. I like seeing the flow in that, like that, that system, you know, of mm. what do we want and where are we? What's in between, and what's that? What's that first thing to to get us going? Mm. Uh, I, I always take a cold shower in the mornings. First thing, you know, it just sets me, wakes me up, refreshes me, and that's why I wrote in the in the shower like a couple of things that I need to remember. You know, one thing at a time, and and get get going. So anyway, so I, I like I, I like seeing you for for the last few years. I I agree that you like. You like to to plot out the the process and the plan and get clarity on that. Um, yeah. So uh, you, your kids think you are the strongest, and that's good. But uh, um, in terms of your superpower, I, I agree. You have a, a a view for that or a knack for finding that process and that clarity, and excites me on your behalf to to know that you're working on this bigger, uh, the high performance life, which is a bigger. Uh, project but a bigger purpose and uh, to impact different people through that yes. and, and 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 the outflow of this i mean the podcast and the site they they essentially are channels you know for people to to tap into what i've learned and you know what i feel i can bring together and what, I, what other people have taught me but i want to i'm going to i want to essentially move into the performance coaching space as well which is almost like to, to help people implement that high performance life. Mm. You know? That's what the performance coaching for me is about. So when, can, uh, when and how can people book? Well, the site should be up. Like up. We were talking about systems and processes now, so it's step by step. So the next step is launching the podcast. Right. And then the, the step after that is for the, the booking site to go live. So that... Right. The, my, I, I'm not sure when when this episode is going to go live. It should be in the next couple of weeks. Mm. So by the time this goes live, should be able to book for for, for coaching sessions within two to two to three weeks. All right, exciting. Yeah, no. Well, we'll, we'll see. It is exciting. <laughs> is a bit. Uh, and I hope it's a bit scary as well. It's very scary. That's why it's also exciting. Good. Yeah. But thanks for giving your time and, and sharing your story with me and with us. And um, I'm sure that anyone that's listened to that, there's a lot of things that people that I've worked with and talked to. Um, just yesterday, I talked to a student who can identify with that feeling of, you know, what am I supposed to do with my life? And, and often 
the feeling that I can make a mistake with one choice and ruin my whole life is, is paralyzing to many people. So I'm excited about how you can help just plot that process and say, just start with this. And uh, even though you're starting over here or starting over there, you can still reach your purpose. It's not about a career. No, that's great. I mean, I'm, I'm very excited to, to get that going. And I mean, on that note with the fearful student about making mistakes, if the education system can just teach you that it's fine to make mistakes, mm. if that's the only thing they do, they'll already make so much progress. Because I mean, if you write, if you go and, and you write an exam, they tell you up front, if you make 51 mistakes in this exam, you, 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 you'll fail. Mm. So you, you get scared before you even go in, you know, that you won't make it. Yeah, makes sense. But thank you. Thank you once again. And thank you everyone for listening. Till next time. Cool. Thanks a lot, Francois. It was fantastic. Or well, homie. Safe <laughs> space. Cheers. Cheers. Yeah.